Hey everyone, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome back to the last question. Uh, if uh, <clears throat> if this is your first episode, if it happens to be the first episode you're listening to, uh, first off, welcome. Thanks for giving it a listen, no matter how you found the show, no matter what led you here. I would highly recommend you listen to the previous episode. This is in fact part two of When Connection Became Performance. Um, and that theme we talked about in the last episode, um, which you might've listened to last week or a few days ago, or who knows, you might've just listened to it. In any case, there's a lot that I'm going to talk about, uh, in this episode that really won't make as much sense if you haven't listened to the previous one. So in any, in any event, right, it's up to you, but I would recommend that you listen to part one first. Um, there were a number of things we talked about in the last episode. And so while I will not rehash the entire thing, you know, one of the, one of the, the big themes and one of the big core concepts from the last conversation from, from the last episode was um, the subconscious narrative that it seems all of us are operating under and operating within. And uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to and talk about was social media. And so those two things don't seem to connect to each other, but in fact, they intersect right at the same spot where my career transition, my military transition, and really a whole lot of stress and strain and um, mental effort also intersects. And, you know, I, I wasn't actually going to record, so it, it is um, and I'm not always going to do this also because I realize if I actually get ahead in recording episodes or I'm interviewing someone and I'm getting ahead of an episode release, right, the dates are going to start to make less sense. But it's a habit I've gotten into. So Friday, May 6th, it's about 9 p.m. on the East Coast. So if you're keeping track, doing the math, I recorded um, yesterday and released yesterday part one on May 5th. And uh, I should be releasing part two. This episode right here will publish the next coming Wednesday. So by the time you listen to this, it's been a few days since I recorded the pair. I wasn't sure that I was going to record today. Had a busy day, uh, a lot going on. And then I, of course, was on social media this morning. In fact, on social media, primarily to share the link to part one. Uh, which I just now realized I don't think I finished. I, I did not finish that process, at least on Facebook. So I will have to do that here um, after we finish recording. But <clears throat> but anyway, I wasn't going to record tonight. Um, had a lot to think about, had a lot going on, had a bunch of housework to get done. It is Friday, uh, but you know we've got young kids and I'm old. So that's what I'm going to do on a Friday night probably is, is do some laundry. But I came across something that I've been thinking about most of the day to day, and I came across it on Facebook. And so get ready. I'm going to share this first, and then I'm going to finish talking about what I wanted to talk about last night, yesterday, last week, whenever you listen to it, um, and really bring home what connection becoming performance really means. So but before I read these two, these are screenshots that I've saved, and I'm not going to name anyone. Um, but I'm going to read these two different posts. 
before I do that, just a quick rehash. The subconscious narrative that we have operating, some people, myself included, might refer to it as God's plan, as the, as the plan that we are executing as um, the will of a divine power that, that does in fact have a hand or an interest in where we end up and what it is we're contributing to this life. You may not feel that way, and that's totally okay, right? It might be a universal force. It might be a programming feature of our um, of the of the evolved subconscious. It it might be totally bunk. Um, in my case, the last year was particularly rough. Working a job that I really shouldn't have been working in. Because ultimately, I think it diverged from that story, that narrative. And there's been a lot of work done by psychologists, by people who study writing and narrative, by neuroscientists, by a variety of disciplines that all center on how our brains are finely tuned to story, right? If, if you take a marketing course, I would be surprised. I'm caught up on my cords here. I would be surprised if you didn't talk about storytelling at some point. And frankly, if you take a marketing course and don't talk about storytelling, you should probably find another teacher or another book or another uh, course because that is ultimately what sells. Um, you know, I, I know enough to know that. I know enough to, to, to assert that objectively. I, however, am not a salesperson, certainly not in my previous industry and certainly not in a place where the incentive is on volume and on quotas and on particular subsets of the population. There are a lot of things that I could probably legitimately sell. In fact, you know, right now I work in a running store and that's one of the things that I do part-time. Um, and I have no problem talking to someone about running shoes, but I also work for a running store in central Ohio that does not pay us on commission. It does not focus on sales numbers, at least not day to day. Somebody is there focusing on sales. They have to focus on revenue. I understand that, but we are not getting hounded because we haven't sold enough of this type of shoe or that type of shoe. Um, different model, different culture. Um, if, if you are a runner at all, you probably realize, right, the running culture, yes, there's some competition there and there are competitive people out there, but by and large, the running culture is, in fact, to use a loaded term now, an inclusive culture. Like for the most part, when you walk into a running store, if you've literally never run a mile in your life, or if you're a marathoner, ultra marathoner, training for three or four races a year, like both of you will get, could get stellar service. Now, not every running shop is, is awesome, but you know, I do firmly believe the running shops we have around here and in mine, and I've seen this happen, right? Somebody who came in and it doesn't matter what you look like, but they said, I'm running my first 5k next weekend. I'm running, my, hopefully not. It's that close, but you know, it, it does happen. I'm running my first 5k next weekend and my shoes are crap. And I just realized like, I'm not ready for this at all. And I just need some help all the way up to, yep. I've got a hundred mile ultra out West three months from now. I'm looking to get a third pair of trainers to have as the backup to the backup. We, we see both ends of the spectrum and everything in between. Um, that's an environment I've, I have so far found that I can sell in. Anyway, I'm, I'm, 
I'm digressing from the point of this episode, episode or part two, which really is going to focus on the social media piece and the personal branding piece. Um, so let, so here, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to read these two posts to you first. And, and this is another thing as a side note. I don't know where this started. I don't know who started this trend. Um, I would have some choice words for whoever started this trend, but there's, there's this thing on, I've noticed on LinkedIn and on Facebook where people tweet something and then they just post the screenshot of the tweet in the other platform. And then to make it worse, my personal opinion, to make it worse, they will copy paste the text of the tweet, which is visible in the picture as the post text, right? So you end up reading it twice if you're paying attention. Not everyone does this, but a lot of people I've noticed do this and I have no idea why. And I, and I don't know what value, it, clearly it must have value because a lot of people track their analytics, which I will get to that in a minute. If you don't know what that means, frankly, God bless you. But um, chances are you probably know what that means. So here are the two posts. And I, and I did not pick these in any particular order, but they came up literally in less than one swipe, right? Like they were stacked right on top of each other almost. Actually, so I pulled up these two screenshots, but now I don't remember. Well, I'll just go by clock time. I think I, I well, yeah, I'll go by when I took them. I don't know which one came up first in the in the scroll, but it doesn't really matter. All right, post number one, um, and we'll and we'll call them um, John and Jane Doe, right? So generic names. I am not going to name these people. Whether you agree with them or disagree with them, I'm not going down that road. Okay. John Doe says, if you were willing to sacrifice your grandma two years ago so that you could keep eating at Applebee's, you don't get to call yourself pro-life. I don't make the rules. I'm probably not using the right inflection there. Um, so let me read it one more time, actually. Quote, if you were willing to sacrifice your grandma two years ago so that so that you could keep eating at Applebee's, you don't get to call yourself pro-life. I don't make the rules, unquote. That's me inserting subjective subjectivity, right? And my opinion into that post. That's the first one. John Doe, for the sake of discussion. Here's the second one from Jane Doe. I'm touched, quote, I'm touched that the people actively chasing us around with needles have paused to talk to us about bodily autonomy. One more time. I'm touched that the people actively chasing us around with needles have paused to talk to us about bodily autonomy. Unquote. Okay. And I'm just going to take a drink. Hang on. This is what's wrong with us. And it's absolutely ludicrous. I, I have to say that. I'm sorry. <clears throat> All right. So almost a year before I got off active duty, before I left the Air Force, right? When you start to pay attention to resume writers and you start to get recruiting messages here and there, or you start to talk to other people who went through transition and you're trying to get you know, whatever gouge, whatever intel you can, 
because it's a stressful thing that no matter how many people go through it every single year, we seem to reinvent that wheel hundreds of thousands of times. As you start to pay attention to what it takes to get a job in the real world, you see a lot. I saw a lot and I heard a lot of advice. You see a lot of uh, content, a lot of subject matter, a lot of courses, free and otherwise, that revolve around personal branding. Now, I want you to take a second or take a few seconds. And I want you to think about, I genuinely want you to think about this. What does personal brand mean to you? Secondary to that, what is your personal brand? If you had to answer that question, if someone in an interview asked you that question and, and assume they haven't seen you know, because perhaps it's a trick question, right? The cynic in me is going to assume that when you're asking me that, perhaps it's because you've you've stalked me on LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter and these places, and now you're trying to catch me in some sort of weird, in some sort of thing where I say, well, my, I stand for this, this, and this. And they're like, well, in 2012, you tweeted this, which I didn't, I don't even, I've barely used Twitter, but as an example, right? In 2012, you tweeted this. That doesn't seem like a very blah, blah, blah person to me. Okay. What is your personal brand? You can say it out loud. You can say it to yourself. If you have no idea, that's a fair answer. Because I, because I do not think the more I've thought about this and the longer I've spent sitting with this concept and dealing with this concept and having to confront this concept, the less convinced I am that it is somehow directly connected to your core values and, and what it takes for you to live in integrity. And I'll explain what that means or what I mean by that, because for a while I was the opposite, right? If, if your, your brand is an extension of your personal ethic, your core values, what kind of person you are, what kind of leader you are, what kind of family member and friend you are. But I, I don't think that's true because I think there's something embedded in that term that a lot of people, some of them well-intentioned, take for granted that is screwing us. So just sit with that for a moment. What is personal brand or personal branding? And what is your personal brand? And any answer is right, right? There is no right answer. To include, I have no fucking clue. I have no idea. Okay, so in part one, I mentioned uh, also a couple of different psychologists. Jordan Peterson interviewing Angus Fletcher, a professor at Ohio State. Go Bucks! Uh, and I linked to that podcast episode in the previous podcasts, in the previous episode's description. Today, um, we're going to talk about another psychologist, one of my favorite to read and to listen to in interviews, and probably... Well, there's there's so many social psychologists out there, and I and I don't want to do any of them a disservice. But certainly, as far as the ones that have a public face um, and a public presence, and if you can hear that in the background, that's one of our dogs coughing. They're they're both pretty old, and and they both have some medical conditions. So I think I managed to cut out most of that. Anyway, Jonathan Haidt. One of my favorite social, social psychologists to read and to listen to, 
Um, he wrote The Righteous Mind, released that several years ago, and then released the book that he's probably now best known for, The Coddling of the American Mind, 2016, with co-author Greg Lukianoff, based on an article released in The Atlantic a year prior that was discussing very directly the adverse impact that social media, in particularly photographic social media, think Facebook, think Instagram in particular, the adverse impact that those platforms and the way we use them was having on our children, particularly preteens, kids coming up into middle school, which if you remember middle school is a terrible time, right? There's a whole lot of emotional ups and downs. You're coming into puberty for, for in, in many cases. There's a whole lot of confusion about who you are, let alone who everyone else is, right? Middle school is not necessarily the best period of, of life, but in some ways it is an absolutely necessary stage of development. So in that book, Height is putting together a, a few factors that he and his co-author argue are key to understanding um, Gen Z's development and what we're seeing out of them now. and what social media has become and why we have this love-hate relationship with it, right? Because if you think all the way back, and my wife and I talk about this, you know, every so often, if you think all the way back to 2006, 2007, 2008, what was Facebook like back then? Think about what was Facebook like? If you didn't have Facebook, okay, I can tell you, you had to have a .edu email address to access Facebook, right? That means you had to be affiliated with a college or university. And, and for the most part, I don't remember how they enforced this. You had to be a student at a university because it was originally designed, right? I think by Zuckerberg in his Harvard dorm room, instead of going to class, he built Facebook. And it was originally designed as like this sort of yellow pages or white pages for Harvard students to, to share, to connect with each other. And then of course it expanded. But originally, Facebook was students, college students, so legal adults, you know, whether we're in fact mature enough for, for new toys is a different matter, but legal adults. And it was like the wall, and that's it, right? And so what my wife and I often talk about and the things we remember and we laugh about are when we would leave each other messages like, hey, can't wait for this weekend. Hey, we're going on spring break or whatever. And it was just on a, you know, we were together, we were together and getting serious in college. We got married soon after college. So it's, it's like, Hey, I love you. Can't wait to see you spending Valentine's day with my blah, 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 just right on the wall, right. Publicly. There was no DMing. There were no private messages. Facebook was really, if you think about it, if you think back pretty rudimentary, it was still a breakthrough in, in connection and online communication, but it was pretty rudimentary. But here's something that Height points to that I never, I didn't know until I read his research and until I read the book. Facebook, and I don't remember the background for it, but Facebook did something in, I think, 2011 that Twitter copied in 2012 
And he points to this as one of the key developments in social media and one of the key turning points in our collective relationship with social media. And that was the addition of the like button. The like button from Facebook got copied by Twitter. Twitter then added the retweet and Facebook copied it with the share. So think about what that means. So before the like button and the share button and the retweet button, there's not a mechanism for feedback other than I think replies. I think you could reply on the wall perhaps or comment maybe. I don't even remember that. But there, but there was, but there was two-way communication, right? But it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't as easy, right? You had to actually type out a message, and there were no metrics. There was no way, really, of measuring. There wasn't an incentive to create something that would go viral, right? Going viral wasn't a concept to us yet. We didn't understand what that meant. At that point, viral was still a medical term. And then something happens when they add these buttons, the like button, retweet, share. Now it becomes easier to express your support, to upvote something, right? Simply to add what LinkedIn calls an impression. I think what Facebook might call an impression I don't know, Twitter might call it the same thing, who knows, right? But if you're one of these people that looks at your social media analytics, right? If you're a business person online, or if you're a, an influencer or a wannabe or a would-be influencer, right? If you look at these things, and LinkedIn does this because it makes you think that this is how you get a job, right? Which I will get to that. If you look at these analytics, you know, almost overnight, within a couple of years, right? Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and all these platforms now have loads and loads of data on interaction that is remarkably simple to collect because now it's not about trying to figure out who commented on what. And you can, you can program or, or you can build an algorithm that will look for certain words and comments. And these companies do that too. And they aggregate comments based on stuff that sounds angry, stuff that sounds happy, stuff that sounds sad. That's a thing, but it's even easier for you to simply look at a post and say, you got 4,500 likes, you know, or you got 1,500 likes, 900 hearts, a bunch of ha-has, whatever, whatever the menu is. You can see how many times it's been retweeted or shared. And something else Hype points out is when you add a retweet or share function, now you take the effect of a, of a potent message or post, whether it's designed to agitate or not, you take its effect from linear to exponential. Right. So because visualize if, if I post something on social media and I am one person and let's say I have 100 friends. If 50 or, or not, let's not even be that generous. Right. If 10 of my friends like that thing, the platforms are designed to then send that 
liked post to all 10 of those friend lists, right? So if 10 of my 100 friends, if 10% of my friend list likes it, up to 100% of all of those friend lists will see the post, right? So now my reach has been multiplied by at least those 10 individuals and then by however many friends they have. If even 10% of that number like it, think about what that number could be, right? So if all of us have 100 friends, 10% of my friends like it, what is 10 times 100? 1,000 people see it. If only 10% of them like it, that's 100 people. And now it goes to 10,000 people, right? So this, so this is what he's talking about. Instead of a linear effect, which has up to this point been manageable, right? And a lot of the things that we say that can be inflammatory, they don't necessarily, they don't go viral when they, the, when they run in a linear fashion because it requires, it requires consistent effort on individuals to pass the message along. The game of telephone, the rules of telephone almost almost guarantee that the message will will fizzle or will at least evolve or devolve to the point where it becomes less inflammatory. People don't necessarily have the time when it requires higher fidelity, more energy. But when it's about a like button and all you got to do is like it or heart it or hit the button on Facebook, you can hit the button for an angry face. That's helpful. Right when all when that's all it takes to increase your exposure, now your exposure goes up literally tenfold. It can go up tenfold in a in a second, and now your reach can go past hundreds of thousands in a matter of minutes. That's that's what going viral is. Right, that's when we see videos. Um, I, I mean, certainly the the George Floyd. The George Floyd murder in the middle of Minneapolis went viral. That's how it goes viral because so many people see it and so many people share it at the same time. Now, I'm not saying it, it, it's, I'm, this is not a conversation about whether we should or should not have seen that video because in some ways, this technology allows us to get faster accountability for bad stuff. Right. So it's not all bad. But think back to the posts that I just read a few minutes ago. Quote, if you were willing to sacrifice your grandma two years ago so that you could keep eating at Applebee's, you don't get to call yourself pro-life. I don't make the rules. Unquote. Okay, so that one is probably going to get support and likes and retweets from a certain subset of users. You can do the math in your own head. And then this other one, quote, I'm touched that the people actively chasing us around with needles have paused to talk to us about bodily autonomy, unquote. Another subset of users will probably resonate with that post, we'll say. I am not going to comment on whether I think there's merit to these comments. I think they're both, I think it's dumb on both sides. I think both of them are stupid. Because neither one of them attempts to engage in any productive conversation whatsoever. The discourse is not useful. 
it's purely a jab. It's purely, um, it's a cheap shot. It's a jab. And it is what Jonathan Haidt calls performance. So he makes this point that, I, that I, I'm sure I had heard before, but I hadn't really spent time thinking about. So, you know, understand that in 2011, 2012, we get this functionality online, which allows us not just to, for very little energy, indicate our approval of something through a like button, a little bit more energy, and you can even give a lot more approval, right? If you think about this, like and retweet aren't that different from each other. Like and share aren't that different from each other. Yeah, you can add some text to a share post, but you can also just hit share and then hit post, right? That's not a lot of energy for a whole lot more reach because now that sucker's under your name and the algorithm treats those differently. I know I'm simplifying this to some extent, but, but understand the key concept, right? When we added that functionality into these platforms programming, we went from linear expansion of a message to exponential expansion of a message. We created virality in social media. That's what enables virality. So I look at these two posts and I think there is zero substance in either of these posts. Zero. But the post, uh, John Doe's post, the, the sacrifice grandma to eat at Applebee's post, I took this photo, I think maybe trying to gauge the time. On Twitter, it was posted at just after eight o'clock in the morning on a, on a particular day. And I took the screenshot, it looks like at 5.45 p.m. So actually, this was, this was yesterday evening, now that I think about it. Um, so in that amount of time, 282 likes, okay, 68 retweets. I don't have numbers on the other one, the, the, the one off of Facebook. I either cut it off or I couldn't see it. I, I don't see it. It doesn't really matter. And then 10 quote tweets. I don't even know what that means. But on, the, on John Doe's, 282 likes. Yeah, maybe that's, you know, that's probably not virus material. 68 retweets. That's 68 people who thought it worthy of their own brand that they would put it underneath their name for whatever reason, right? And you will see statements on people's Twitter descriptions that say retweet does not equal endorsement. Yeah, okay, I, I get it, right? It's important to have a discussion and it might be important for me to elevate a message of someone who is an intellectual opponent so that I can engage them. I, I get that argument. I got it. I get it. I've recommended to people reading books like Mein Kampf Yes, I've, I've recommended people read a book written by Hitler, because if you want to understand one of America's existential enemies, you should read their book. Sun Tzu was right. Know your enemy. So if you're going to elevate someone's message through a, week, through a retweet or share, okay, I understand the argument. Except that what we're doing even inadvertently, is we are overexposing 
the least useful pieces of the discourse. And I, and I don't know that we're elevating these messages simply so that we can engage them more usefully. Because even I look at these things and I scroll past both these posts and I'm like, I, do I say something about this? Like that's, that's ludicrous. And then I scroll a couple inches down because I'm like, I'm not going to respond to this is stupid. And then I keep scrolling and I see the other one. I'm like, my holy damn, like these are, this is what's wrong. And then I got the idea, you know what? I'm going to take pictures of this. I'm not going to respond to this crap because I don't have time for this anyway. And it's just sucking energy that's useless, right? This I am, I am making the mistake getting sucked into social media. But I took the pictures and I realized then that I was going to share them on the podcast because this, this is the problem. Zero substance, no discourse. It's not productive. But this shit gets spread around and it can get spread around very easily. And we've built that functionality into the social media platforms. Well, why? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna adjudicate that. But then it led me to think about what has always bothered me. And I couldn't articulate it until recently, but what has always bothered me about personal branding. So for several years now, we have told each other, we have reminded each other, anytime you apply to a school or to a job, scrub your social media accounts, right? Have you ever been told that? If you're military or a government employee, you may have been told point blank, don't have an account at all. Or like I was told, and I, and I understand the reason for this. Open an account so that someone else can't use your name as a spoof and then don't do anything with it. Just open your account to, to take the name and then do nothing with it. Not sure the merits of that argument, but I heard that several times from, from people who specialize in operational security and, and counterintelligence type stuff. Okay. In either case, right? So government, military small subset of the population. And even then there's plenty of military and government people who aren't restricted from having accounts and they have accounts just like anybody else. And it's a classic argument, right? On Facebook, um, it's a great way to connect with high school friends or, or college friends or whatever. And, and I do do that on LinkedIn. It is generally speaking better than Facebook. Some days, not so much, but generally speaking a little bit better than Facebook. And it has become this sort of clearinghouse for jobs, even though it doesn't work very well. Maybe for some people, I, I don't know, it's hard to say. Once I turned on my open to work banner after the last job ended, all I would see on my posts are, or on my feed was recruiters talking about recruiting. Well, that's not really helpful either. So, but whatever. Personal branding. We've been telling ourselves for a long time now, several years, your personal brand is everything. You have to have a personal brand. You have to know what your brand is when you walk into an interview and everything that you submit to a job posting, to a job for a job application, to a hiring manager should reflect whatever that brand is. And I fell into this trap too, just like anybody else, right? I, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out, well, how am I supposed to present this and package all this? And I'm working as a, 
an investment financial advisor, an investment advisor. I'm out of the military. You would think the shackles are off. I can do whatever I want on social media, right? Of course, the firm I work for has more rules about social media than the Air Force did. But one of the things they expect you to do is use social media and and engage on a regular basis. And particularly on LinkedIn, the most common advice you get is you need to post every day because posting every day not doesn't just increase your visibility to friends or what LinkedIn calls connections. It's the same thing. But from an algorithm perspective, right? It not only increases your visibility in a linear fashion to your friends list, it increases the likelihood that second degree connections or friends of friends will see it. So you are inviting the possibility of exponential growth and exposure if you post every day. Because what happens is, as you post every day, you increase the likelihood that your friends will hit like, let alone share, right? But if they hit like or celebrate or whatever those LinkedIn buttons are, then every second degree connection, which is a friend of a friend, will see it. And then they're going to have the opportunity to do the same thing, right? And, and you can make the same argument about Facebook. I, I really don't think the mechanics are that different. Who knows what the algorithms really look like? But, but what, was, what was always troubling for me on LinkedIn, on the professional version, quote unquote, of the social media world, you had to post every day. And because of various federal regulations and because my firm was a huge pain in the ass, I, I couldn't post anything about personal finance. So I'm an investment advisor with these licenses and I'm supposed to be helping people with personal finance, but for a variety of reasons, some legitimate, some not, anything I posted had to be about something other than that, right? So, so then it becomes, well, what, what else, what am I qualified to post that makes sense and that doesn't turn into this exercise in just gut-wrenching content creation, right? Where you're just, grasping at straws to make some shit up and like put some hashtags in there and who knows what they're for, but you're chasing analytics, right? So that people look at your stuff and you see how this cycle perpetuates. So if you followed me for any length of time or you know me, I posted a lot on leadership. That stuff kind of came naturally to me. And God knows I see examples of terrible leadership almost every day. And I certainly did in my last firm. Um, good things that happen, trying to be positive great moments in the morning with the kids. I, we do not put our kids on social media, but there've been a couple of times where with their faces obscured because it was that good of a moment, I wanted to share it. Um, you know, mistakes you make, being a leader is all about being able to admit mistakes. I, I lit our, our um, pellet grill on fire a few weeks back, not on purpose. And so, um, in fact, I, I posted about that because I was, I was, well, I was making fun of something, but anyway, but you spend so much time trying to figure out what am I supposed to say? What is my post going to be about today? Uh, I don't know well, we lost another play car under the fridge. How do I turn that into useful LinkedIn material, right? This is like a daily thing for people. And for a while it was a daily thing for me and it would generate legitimate stress. It's a little bit of stress. I mean, not like debilitating, but legitimate to the point where I'm like, God, I don't want to do this. 
I do not want to be dealing with this. I hate doing this, but I, but I got to keep the tempo going and it will get easier with time. And I just have to give it time. I just have to give it time, right? I rationalize the hell out of it. Just like I rationalized my place in that last job because the personal brand has to stay intact. Whatever your personal brand is, right? Okay, I'm a financial advisor, but what's my thing? What's my shtick? Um, I guess military, because that's the easy one. Leadership, because that's kind of an easy one, I guess. And um, uh, education, because I've been a teacher. And that's what I wanted to do, right? Education and coaching. So I kind of hovered around those core concepts and tried to maintain some semblance of a personal brand and hated almost every minute of it. Because, you know, it also sticks you, it keeps you on social media more. And, be, and because invariably it happens, you post something and then you tell yourself, I'm not going to check impressions and analytics and numbers. I'm not going to check that shit. I'm just going to post. And of course you check it. Right. And you check it. And then what actually happens is if it doesn't do well, quote unquote, right. If it doesn't get seen by a lot of people or not a lot of people react to it, it's better. You know why? Because if you, if you strike gold or oil, or you think you do, you are set up for failure because you're going to chase whatever you thought got you the oil or the gold the last time, right? Because you had a post and all of a sudden, instead of 15 views or 20 views, like you normally get, this sucker got 1,200. Who knows why? The algorithm perhaps, right? Some gnome behind the curtain knows why, but you now have to sit there and pick apart your post because holy crap, you were able to do it once. You got to do it again. You're getting your face in front of more people. It gives you more opportunities to have a conversation. And holy crap, that means I might be able to sell more of myself, of my product, of my firm, of my service. I, I don't think the advice to maintain, to build and maintain a personal brand is necessarily just driven for selling, maybe it wasn't originally, but I, now as I say that out loud, I don't think I'm convinced of that either. I think perhaps it is driven for selling, even if it's just selling yourself. And, and, I, and I finally realized as I thought about this cycle and about how I got stuck in this cycle and about how much I hated the cycle and I hated myself in it, I realized the reason why the personal brand concept rubs me the wrong way so, so completely and so consistently is that it is perpetuating the very thing we complain about, and it's a game, right? It's, it's not... A personal brand is this thing people cultivate. We build this thing up. I had to build myself up as this investment expert. There was a lot of, of online material to study for the exams. And I'm going to tell you right now, my very first day as a live financial advisor, I knew nothing about investing other people's money. There was no training. 
in my case, for how to invest money. All the training was how to talk to other humans to sell and some a little bit on how to engage on LinkedIn in particular. Zero training on how to choose a mutual fund, how to differentiate stock reports, how to talk through a stock market performance day with a client, like technical stuff, none of that. I had no idea how to invest money on, on day one when I, when I theoretically could legally and by firm policy invest someone's money. But I had to cultivate a personal brand. I had to create a persona that you might never meet in person, but that you would meet every day online. And that's what Height means when he says social media, we, we say that it lets us connect to people. It facilitates connection. And it did at one point. It was primarily a device for connection. And if you think back all the way to, I want to say 06, but that seems too early for Twitter. I should have looked this up before I hit record. Um, if you think back to like 2006, now it's going to bother me. So you probably hear me typing in the background, but um, nope. All right. Won't waste your time. I remember the first time I heard about Twitter. I remember the first time I heard Twitter existed was when I think it was a reporter taken hostage in Egypt, maybe, or in Iran, maybe, used Twitter to advertise his capture. Excuse me. And as much detail as he could about where he thought he was taken. And he got, and we found him because of it. Facebook allowed people to find long lost friends and relatives LinkedIn to a lesser extent, but it lets you connect with professionals under the guise of, Hey, you're a professional. I'm a professional. Let's connect. Okay. It's still a bit artificial, but so to some level, yes, these platforms facilitate connection amongst humans who otherwise wouldn't have an opportunity to collaborate. As an academic, as a teacher, of course, I can appreciate that. But what Height says was, we took, we took a, a dangerous step backward in and around 2012 when connection was no longer the priority on social media what in the moment would have been slow, but looking back was pretty fast. What happened was instead of connection being the objective, performance became the objective. I'm now on social media, wargaming the post I'm going to write or the, the photo I'm going to share or the links I'm going to share or the hashtags I'm going to use, right? Because hashtags are a whole different thing because you can follow individual hashtags. So if you hashtag the right term, 
you're going to reach a whole slew of people who aren't even your friends. So you war game through all of these puzzle pieces and you put this puzzle together and you hit post and the goal, it, it has nothing to do with connecting to someone else. I'm not, I'm not posting to learn more about another human, to connect with a human I know or don't know, or maybe don't know as well, or someone even I want to meet in person. I'm connecting with no one. By definition, I am blasting myself out to the world. And I, and I get it. When, when, when this podcast publishes, I will blast this out and share this with, quote, the world. Social media enables performance. Okay, so those of us who create, which is, which is, there are millions of people who create and who create great material online in written form, audio form, visual form. Tons of people who deserve credit for simply their creative faculties. Social media enables performance. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but social media incentivizes performance. And the other thing, the last piece that I'll bring up, and this was, and a lot of this was triggered by Jonathan Hyde, who was interviewed by Barry Weiss, who's a journalist uh, who was at the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, and who now runs um, what she calls a media company called Common Sense. And it's um, mostly accessible, I think, through Substack. If you haven't read it, I would highly encourage you to. She also wrote a book in 2018 called How to Fight Anti-Semitism. Short book, really good. So she's interviewing him, though, and he's, and he's talking about when connection transitioned to performance and how that took us on a hard turn backward, arguably. The other thing he said was, you know, we are wired. We have evolved over several millennia to be very attuned, well-attuned to danger, right? So our brains will immediately pick up on danger and our physiological stress response is still very highly attuned to when our subconscious processing picks up a danger signal. The problem is in this day and age, because our conscious faculties have evolved society so much faster than our individual brains could evolve because evolution of a brain, it's one of the dogs again, sorry, evolution of the brain takes millennia. Evolution of our technology has taken a couple of decades, right? So our brains literally cannot keep up. So what happens is we now are highly tuned still to indications of danger, but for the most part, and, and I say the most part deliberately, right? This is not all of humanity, but for many of us in the so-called Western world, we'll say, or the developed world, whatever euphemism you want to use, we're not running away from wildlife. We're not chasing after hunting after animals to survive. We're not at constant war with each other physically in the traditional sense, but we still detect danger every day. And it comes in the form of our work stress, the fear that we're going to lose our jobs, financial stress, 
Um, and all the political headlines and all the crap we see on the news and on social media every day, every day, multiple times a day. So what Height said about this is very interesting. I think what he said was some people assume that social media isn't ultimately to blame or a contributing factor or a cause to this because it still seems like most people are moderate and normal. And I am one of those people who avoided for the longest time being alarmist, being politically fatalist about this stuff, because I talk to all of my neighbors on a fairly regular basis. We're, we're good friends with our next door neighbors. And I can't imagine getting into a conversation about most of this stuff with any of them. We, we talk about other things that matter more, like the HOA screwing somebody again, right? Or when is trash day or who's doing beers this weekend? Let's go over to your place and we'll, we'll smoke a hog and bring it over. It, it, that, that's the stuff we do, right? And then we talk about work. We talk about kids. Our kids play together. That's the shit most people do because we're trying to get through life and trying to make something of this life and this house and our family unit. I, I don't give two shits about the fight that people are having on Facebook. And I don't think my neighbors do either. And I don't think my neighbors across the street do. And I don't think my neighbor down the street does who's trying to build his fence and, and deal with the HOA. And these are the kind of people I run into at the grocery store. These are the kinds of people I go to work with. These are the kinds of people who come into the running shop. So as height would say, there's this assumption that, well, the majority of us are still trying to just live normally and not freak out at everything. And so how, how can social media that be that big of a deal, that big of an influence? It seems to be influencing something, but most people aren't paying attention because we don't have the time or the effort or the energy to expend. Because height, he's at a point where he's arguing that our democracy cannot survive with the way social media incentivizes us to operate. He, he is not optimistic unless we change something. And I don't want to spend too much time on that because I'm not, I don't think I'm, I'm not convinced of his argument yet, but his argument is compelling. But what he said was, we know psychologically and, and therefore the programmers now know, right? And the programmers who create the algorithms now know the type of post on social media that gets the most engagement, right? So the most clicks of the like button or the retweet button or the share button. And they also know how long you linger on an individual post, right? When you're scrolling and you stop, the amount of time you spend stopped versus scrolling, that is quantified and that is tracked. We know that certain words and certain messages do better, quote unquote, in terms of viewing time, number of viewers, number of users who engage and or comment and or share. And surprise, surprise, it's the stuff that's written using words that are associated with anger, with fear, with rage. It's, it's the stuff that sounds bad. It's the negative stuff because we are so tuned 
to the shit that's bad because we are designed to look for the thing that will kill us. In a society where we're not constantly under threat, our brain finds the next best thing. Our brain finds the threat. And there is so much stress in some of these corners of society, right? You can go, if you can go a day not looking at your smartphone, I would highly encourage you to try it. I would do whatever you can to try it and see how you feel. See how you feel. Be bored in line at Kroger. Don't pull your phone out. Better yet, put your phone in a kitchen cabinet, let your family know where you are, and then don't worry about it for a day and see how you feel. The effect can be incredible. It can be disconcerting if you're somebody who is constantly on your phone. But by the end of the day, how do you feel? And, and, and assess what types of emotional ups and downs you went through, if any. We know that the social media platforms were programmed to do this, right? Because that's how you maintain attention. You freak people out. The Sorry about that. Dogs, one more time. Our media organizations know this. This is how the news has operated for a long time. If it bleeds, it leads is true for a reason. It works, right? So social media is simply exploiting that same tendency. Okay, we, we generated all of these incentives to perform. And in some ways, we made it sound good by saying personal brand, you got to build your brand, you got to build your image. This is, this is the future of how you're going to make money and make a name for yourself. And all of these platforms rallied around this idea that if I create a feedback loop that is going to give you incentive to keep on engaging, you will then build more engagement. And remember how they make money is simply quantifying the number of people on the platform and looking at it and they sell ads. That's it. And I mean, that's not it, but that is how they make the, their money is advertising revenue, right? Because there are billions of people on these platforms. So I'm trying to think through all of us, and I, and I realize this is why personal branding, to me, is a, is a false god, as some people might say. For you to have to cultivate a persona and to do it online, to be, to be told, I've been told, I ha not only do I have to cultivate a persona, right, because you have to rewrite your resume for every job which is basically lying to everybody because yes, you're telling me rephrase it and change the term so that it's more relevant to them. Okay. We're like half a step back, but now I have to cultivate a persona and then I'm told you really have to do it online. Cause that's where everybody checks. Some companies, some people say straight up, like they still make you submit a resume. Then they submit, make you, fill in all of the work information separately in the same application. And then you find out later, they didn't look at any of that shit. They just looked at your LinkedIn profile. So it had better match. Oh, and it had also better be a great forward-looking, jazzed up, tech-inspired, personal billboard, right? I mean, quote unquote, those, those words have been used at me multiple times. Your LinkedIn profile is your billboard. 
it's your calling card, it's your business card, it's whatever cool term you want to use, which is just generating another avenue, another incentive to perform online. So then to Height's point, what is stress-inducing, what is anger-inducing anger is what gets clicks and views. And what happens is that 75-80% of so-called normal people who you think would help moderate the platforms, what do you think they do? They leave. Right, they become the, the so-called lurkers. They get on Facebook, they're looking for recipes, they're looking at funny videos, they're looking at the reels or the shorts or the whatever. Everybody's got the same version of it because TikTok freaked everybody out. But they're not engaging with a post, they're not commenting on it. They're stay, they are not posting because they're not into that game. So to some level, I totally understand that. If 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 you go into social media but you don't get sucked into it necessarily, or you do but you're simply looking at stuff. I mean, okay, I, I get it. But what happens is all the normal people leave. So what's left behind? The reason why social media sometimes is just one big dumpster fire is because the only people who are left are the ones who will expend the time and energy and effort to scream at the top of their digital lungs some of the dumbest shit you'll ever read. For example, quote unquote, I'm touched that the people actively chasing us around with needles have paused to talk to us about bodily autonomy. Wonderful. I hope you feel better. If it was a stress relief valve for you, okay. I feel strongly about this because we all, I shouldn't say all, a lot of people say we need to have a conversation about X. I've said that before. We need to have a better conversation. And I, and I came to realize, this was on active duty, I came to realize every time someone says, it's like miscommunication, it's kind of an inside joke. If you know me well, you know that miscommunication is my least favorite word. So to the extent that it even is a word, my least favorite term in the English language. It is a euphemism for I fucked up or somebody fucked up. That's it. Okay, that's a side note. Please don't use that word around me if you can, if you can help it. But, but another, another fun euphemism people use, um, and especially senior leaders when you're in a conference or in a meeting and nobody knows what to do about a problem, Suicide in the, military for, in the military, for instance, we need to have a real conversation about how to fix this. Have you heard that before? We need to have a real conversation about suicide in the military. We need to have a real conversation about sexual assault. We need to have a real conversation about race relations on campus. We need to have a real conversation about income inequality. We need to have a real conversation about term limits. We need to have a real conversation about half our legislators being retirement age. We have to have a real conversation about military population being less than 1% of 330 million people. We have to, I could go on and on and on and on. And I've lost count the number of times I've heard people in positions of leadership and responsibility and trust say, we need to have a real conversation. What the hell are we doing right now? 
what is this? What is this meeting, which is prepping for a meeting? When I was a missileer, we, we created meetings ahead of meetings ahead of meetings. And I know it wasn't just our community, right? We had to go to a pre-pre-departure before the pre-departure before departure. Okay, we, we generate all these things because it makes us look busy and makes us look like we're interested in doing something when in fact, we're either not interested, that's possible, or the charitable view is we have no fucking idea what to do. But if we keep talking about it, it makes it look like I'm engaged and then eventually I will leave this job and then I'm not responsible anymore, right? And that we see on active duty a lot because we know that our days are numbered. The more senior you get, in theory, the more often you're moving. So for a senior commander, you don't have a lot of time there and there are a lot of things to do. But at the most senior levels, right? If, if, I mean, I feel like we've been talking about suicide, sexual assault, DUIs for a long time. And I don't know the statistics. I don't know the data. Maybe we are in a better place than we were two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. Maybe we are. But either way, we need to have a real conversation. Conversation is necessary. I'm the first one to say that discourse, our discourse has to be better. But if, if, if what we think is discourse is this, and I'm pointing to my computer screen with those two screenshots, if this is what we think is discourse, we've lost discourse forever. This is not discourse. This is performance. It's performance theater, right? There's a performative element to this that might seem satisfying and is and seems satisfying to a lot of people. But it doesn't get us anywhere, does it? It doesn't actually generate any progress. It doesn't make anything better. It's, it's like saying in the pre-social media days, imagine if the advice was to relieve your stress, take the first thing that comes to your mind that you're upset about, Go straight to the mall and scream it at the top of your lungs. Okay? This is 1998, let's say. Put yourself back in 1998, probably one of the strongest years out of the, out of the boom in 90s, economically speaking, right? 1998, if you're mad about something, let's say you really don't like Bill Clinton, whatever. Let's say you're really mad about Bill Clinton and you really want to say something to kind of just jab at him and you're just stressed about it. And you're pissed off about it. And you just watched something on the news that you don't like. And if I told you, just go to the mall and shout it at the top of your lungs and see who looks at you and kind of smiles and gives you a thumbs up. Would you do that? You might, maybe. I'm not going to, maybe. I'm not going to make assumptions. That's what we're doing. That is this. That is what we're doing right now. Maybe someone would stop you and say, hey, 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 look, uh, you know, you, you seem agitated and upset, but do you want to talk about it? 
we we could be doing that i guess but we're not i'm willing to 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 say that we're not i don't think you think we are either it's not about connection anymore it's about performance and personal branding is about performance and i think we've screwed it up and i think the advice to cultivate a brand is is divesting us of the shit that does matter right to have an ethic and core values something you stand for is important but i don't think that's what people mean i think people who say build a personal brand think they mean that but that's not how we convey personal brands these days personal branding is is i think most often associated with your presence online social media but i will tell you the last time that i that i really was forced to execute my own ethic and live an internally consistent um moment if you will an internally consistent life the last time i did that had nothing to do with social media and it's when i resigned from my last job i was no longer capable of operating in an environment that was going to force me to compromise my ethic and my values and i left and i'm i'm saying it now and i realize this is online but the point is i didn't go into this digital public square and just write an angry post about the company it's not going to get anywhere and and it could have damaged my brand as some might say or could have built up my brand as some others might say and at the end of the day it's not about a brand It's not about a brand because no matter what you're presenting online, how do I know that's who you really are? That's the shield that this online environment gives all of us. I can say whatever I want to you because you can't punch me in the face for it. But if I'm sitting right in front of you, I'm probably not going to be as mean as I might want to be. And you probably won't be either because we're right in front of each other. Psychology talks about that too. When we look each other in the eyes live, not on Zoom, not on Facebook, not through profile pictures, in person, breathing the same air, it changes the dynamic. It matters. Which is why, and I, I met a, a mentor, a friend of mine for coffee yesterday, and I told him I was, I was genuinely grateful that he met me. We met at a Starbucks in town. And I, I came closer to his neighborhood when that was like 10 minutes or whatever away close to his neighborhood because he had another meeting. And I was like, dude, I, I would have driven 45 minutes to come meet you. Like I would have driven anywhere in Central Ohio, frankly, because I will always opt for an in-person meeting. People will offer Zoom for convenience and I will say, nope, I'm good. I'll come to you. I don't care. I'll come to your office. I'll pay to park in a garage. I will. I'll get on a damn toll road. I don't care because it matters to be in person. The conversation in person is a real conversation. Everything else is a facsimile and it will not do the job. I don't think.
If you haven't listened to Jonathan Haidt, if you haven't read any of his stuff, I would highly encourage you to. The conversation with Barry Weiss was enlightening. It's available on her podcast feed. Her show is called Honestly. She's not a sponsor. She's not a supporter. She has no idea who I am, but I'm telling you, listen to that conversation and it will give you a, a it will give you an interesting perspective on social media and technology. I don't agree with every prescription he gives, right? He has some ideas on what we could do to make things better. I don't think all of his ideas would work, but that's the beauty of it. I don't have to, to still find merit in his work, in his research and in his arguments. Um, certainly read the book if you've got the time, but if nothing else, if you commute to work or to school in any capacity and you have a smartphone, which you highly likely you do if you're listening to this, at least listen to that conversation with him now. I think it's, it's still recent, maybe within the last couple of weeks. The show was called Honestly, and it's really illuminating. He's, he's pretty fatalist when it comes to the future of the country uh, related to social media and these technology platforms. I'm not convinced that all is lost, but I am convinced that no conversation, I shouldn't use that word, <clears throat> No exchange that I have on social media is going to solve world hunger. N none. And I'm not even sure that any conversation I have on Zoom is going to solve world hunger. And I've had plenty of conversations on Zoom that are substantive because I had no choice. The person is, you know, we live a thousand miles away and we live in different states or whatever. There's a place for these platforms. There's a place for these technologies. It is not technology's fault. Right? We can't be Luddites about this and say Twitter's the devil and Facebook should never have been invented and put Mark Zuckerberg in jail. None of that's going to help. It's not going to fix it. Mark Zuckerberg, probably not totally ethical, maybe. I don't, you know, I don't know. I'm not going to be judge and jury for him right now. The point is, it is not technology's fault. It's ours. It's yours and it's mine. because we're letting this perpetuate and we're, we're adding fuel to the fire. Every time we post something, certainly every time we post something out of anger, out of rage, out of, out of being annoyed, when we post something without thinking, when we retweet, share things that are inflammatory or that are emotionally charged, right? Or that are just built to get a rise out of somebody, we are the problem. We have the capacity, I think, to use the technology for better, but, it, but as long as we keep talking about building brands and marketing yourself and selling yourself and performance theater, it will never be about discourse and fixing problems. It will always be about upping the ante and looking better than the other guy, than the other girl, than the other person. It will always be about getting the last word in and taking cheap shots because it gets the analytics that you want to see. It's not about a brand. It's about who you are and who you want to be and who you want us to be, I think. So that was part two. I think I'll end it there. Let's make it about connection again.
and not about performance. I really think that's possible. No matter when you're listening to this, what time of day, wherever you are, I hope you're safe. I hope you can get outside, no matter the weather, and take a breath of fresh air. I really hope you can put your phone down for some length of time and take in the world around you, no matter where you are, out in nature, concrete jungle, parking garage, I don't even care. Breathe some fresh air and look away from the screen for a little bit. Um, lots of things are changing personally, professionally. I, I talked briefly about subscriptions and donations toward a project that I'm working on that is a long-term thing uh, that is related to higher education and trying to fix what I see as the core issue with why higher education appears to be failing a lot of people. Uh, I'm going to talk more about that as time goes on. That's probably an episode in and of itself that I should probably use to address it. Uh, certainly before I, I try to, you know, in any way raise, raise funding or ask for people to support a, a subscription part to the Substack or to the podcast or whatnot. That's where the money would go, but you deserve a better explanation than that. And I won't take up any more of your time in this episode. I really appreciate you listening. I really appreciate it if you subscribed. And I really appreciate those of you who email me or, or who message me with feedback. I've gotten a few. I'm not going to come out and say, so many people ask me questions. No, I don't get that many messages and that's fine. But for those of you who have, I really do appreciate it. Those of you who listen, regular or irregular listeners, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm, I'm just, I'm grateful for any level of engagement and um, let me know what you think, right? I, I want to receive the feedback, take the feedback. And you know what, if you want to come on the show, we can talk about it further. I'm 100% able and happy to do that. Um, so until the next time, thanks for listening. This is the last question. Stay safe out there. One more time, I'll put a plug in for taking a breath of fresh air and enjoy some time away from your screen. Be careful. We'll talk to you soon.